This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to DraftKings Network. This is the GM Shuffle. They have to do everything in their power to make Deshaun Watson improve his game. And the years that Deshaun and Hopkins played together, Watson played well. They would have given up three number one picks if Watson didn't play well. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VEASAN. I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer, Elliot Bowman, with us on the ones and twos like he always is. And Michael Lombardi, look at you, buddy. You got the new shirt on and your short sleeve. All you're missing no, is a, is a, is a cu- Cuban, just... Cuban cigar and a fedora, and you be hanging out in Havana, yeah, man. How are we maybe doing? Maybe a Cuban sandwich. <laughs> we're doing Cuban good. Sandwich. Maybe a good Cuban sandwich would be nice. Uh, I'm doing great. You know, it's finally warming up here in the great state of New Jersey, so that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, uh, the Miami Heat don't ever disappoint. I uh-huh. mean, at some point, all these analytical people are going to understand the value of team, the value of belonging, the value of playing together, playing the right way, always will offset what you feel like is superior talent. And together, they are a remarkable, mentally tough team. You know, you can't equate, you can't measure mental toughness in teams. And if you don't practice mental toughness, if you don't practice it, you'll, your team will never have it. It's one of the concerns I have about this year's Cleveland Browns teams. Are mm. they going to be mentally tough? We'll see. 
Yeah, we will see. And we're going to get into some of these teams coming up here in this segment. Also, a fun interview as we continue our series here on the GM Shuffle podcast that everybody's been raving about, the Literature and Leadership Series. We're going to speak with Matt Selman, the showrunner for The Simpsons, coming up here in this next segment. So we can't wait to get to that conversation later on this morning. But let's talk about the Buffalo Bills here, Michael, because Buffalo, it's been a big day for them, big weekend in Buffalo. Broke ground on the new stadium this morning out there in Orchard Park. That's exciting times. Expected Mm -hmm. to be uh, built for the the 2026 season, but they also have shored up that defensive front there, signing Leonard Floyd from the Los Angeles Rams earlier this morning, a one-year deal to come on and help out that pass rush that was a weak spot at the end of the season a year ago. Well, I think it's been a weak spot. I mean, Von Miller had eight sacks, and I think he had, you know, like 20-some quarterback hits. But they've been trying to solve this problem for a while. Rosario, the kid they drafted in the first round, he hasn't been able to do it. They've even brought back Shaq Lawson, Espinosa, the kid they drafted in 20. Uh, you know, they've tried to do this. Uh, Boogie B- Basham, who they drafted in the second round, 2021. 20, they just haven't gotten there. Floyd gives them a chance to have somebody opposite of Von Miller that can rush. He had nine sacks for the Rams last year, and I think it's the perfect piece. You know, everybody wants him to sign Hopkins, but again, if you're playing a team sport and you're playing three elements together, you know, what they need more than anything is they need to be able to rush the passer. They're going to get leads on teams. There's no question their offense is talented enough, but they've got to be able to extend leads with their pass rush, and so far they hadn't been able to do that. I mean, when they lost Miller, I mean, Joe Burrow behind a bad offensive yeah. line was able to have time to make throws. So I, I think this is a great signing by the Bills. I really like it a lot. Yeah, no, I like the signing as well. It's like when you address a need with a player who's a proven player, he's been like a he's not like a, a, a top tier pass rusher, but I think he's a really good complimentary pass rusher. Uh, Leonard Floyd is. And we saw that two years ago with the Rams when the focus wasn't really on him. And they had Von Miller paired with him in the Rams and Aaron Donald on the inside. They were able to get a lot of pressure on the quarterback. So I like the signing here for Buffalo as they continue to kind of fly well, under I, the I, radar a little bit. I mean, he had the most quarterback hits in his career last year with 22. Mm-hmm. You know, he had nine sacks, which, you know, the last three seasons, he's had 10 and a half, nine and a half, and nine. You know, and last year with nine sacks, he's playing on a team that rarely got the lead, so he couldn't really rush. Yeah. So I, I think to me, you know, it's somebody that can really help them. And one of the things that I think we don't talk enough about in terms of pass rushers is the ability to, of the complement from one side to the other. If you are a a, a rusher on on the right side of the defense, as you look at the defense from behind, and your game is to go up the field and squeeze the pocket outside in, right? And your other guy has to be an inside-out rusher. Mm -hmm. If the quarterback's left-handed, we want to force him to his right. So we've got to complement those rushers. If the quarterback's right-handed, we want to force him to his left. So the left end has got to work inside to pressure him there. So it's the concert together. Defensive fronts and rushers have to be scripted. They're choreographed. They're like the dance line. And if you don't spend enough time understanding how to rush the passer, we need this guy to power. They're like a rock and roll band. You know, they all can't sing lead. Somebody's got to push the pocket. Somebody's got to run up the field. Somebody's got to come inside. Somebody's got to be able to control the draw screens. So it works together. I think this Floyd move is really good, you know, and they got they signed Jones. They redid Ed Oliver's contract. Mm-hmm. You, you got to like the move now. They just got to make sure they get the lead. What did you make of Ed Oliver's contract? Four years, $68 million extension, $45 million guaranteed. Obviously, there's the, the nitty-gritty stuff into the contract as well with all the other details and the paragraph five. But uh, on the surface, what do you make of Ed Oliver re up there with the, with the Buffalo Bills? 
I think Ed Oliver's the kind of player that less is more. I think when he has to play all the time, you're not getting the effectiveness of his game because he isn't an overly big man, and he's going to wear down. I think he needs to be in a rotation and utilize him, save him well for the fourth quarter, keep him fresh, and use his quickness because he's got those skills. You know, he can be a guy who plays 800 plays and be more productive than if he plays 1,200 plays. And I think that's part of the depth that they have to have. You know, you need Ed Oliver, you need Floyd, you need Von Miller to be able to rush in that third quarter when you have a 10-point lead that turns it into a 17-point lead. So I like Ed Oliver. I think with all the contracts that have been done at defensive tackle, they could fit him in at, at where he needs to belong. Yeah, he's not really getting that top-of-the-market stuff that we've seen the other defensive tackles go ahead and get. Quinnen Williams is going to be the next guy that gets paid at that position because it's been a big offseason for the DTs throughout these uh, few months here. I want to transition over to the Cleveland Browns, though, because Cleveland's been in the news. They've been making some of these deals in the offseason, getting pass rushers. they got a new defensive coordinator in Jim Schwartz. But now the focus is at wide receiver, and particularly with the former three-time All-Pro DeAndre Hopkins. Hopkins, of course, had the relationship with Deshaun Watson when they were back in Houston together, was recently released by the Arizona Cardinals, and at our show sponsor, DraftKings, they have the market up for which team will sign DeAndre Hopkins. The Cleveland Browns were 30-1 to about eight, nine days ago. Now they're the favorite at even money as all signs point to Northeast Ohio. Well, look, you know, they have to do everything in their power to make Deshaun Watson improve his game. And that's that's paramount. And the years that Deshaun and Hopkins played together, Watson played well. There's no Mm -hmm. denying that they wouldn't have given up three number one picks if Watson didn't play well. So I think that's really important. I think the reason Kansas City and Buffalo are not in this negotiation and maybe Kansas City still is, is because once that Beckham deal signed and I talked about this on a podcast many couple a month ago. Once Beckham got that deal, Hopkins' position in terms of his contract changed completely. You know, he's like, I'm not taking – if this guy can get $15 million on a one-year deal, why do I have to take a pay cut from 19-4? I, I'm a better player than him. I've been playing longer than him. I stay healthy. He doesn't. You know, it's all basically comes down to that. So, you know, this is why I think it's taken a little bit of time for him to get signed. And they got to feel comfortable with him within their offense. Because I think Hopkins in the slot, with Njoku the tight end, him in the slot, and then their outside receivers, whether it's Donovan Peoples-Jones, Cooper, or if they move Elijah Moore outside, this team, this Cleveland team is really talented now. They are really talented. And they're talented everywhere. I mean, this is not a team that doesn't have skill players or they're lacking something thereof. You know, they got two first-round picks at corner, Newsom and Mims, right? They've got defensive front. They've got speed at linebacker. To me, they got a kicker that could be really good in York. They have to be able to come together as a team. They have to be able to show mental toughness, and they can't do dumb things. I mean, on paper, they're a better team than Pittsburgh. But why did Pittsburgh win more games than they did last year? Because Pittsburgh's just flat out more tougher than they are. They're mentally tougher. Hopkins turns 31 tomorrow, so happy early birthday to DeAndre Hopkins. He seems like one of those wide receivers that will age pretty well because, as you pointed out a lot, he never really won with speed. Like, he's always been the guy that's covered. He wins more so on those 50-50 balls, which when you throw to Hopkins are more like 75-25 or 80-20 balls. Yeah. Yeah, no question. I mean, he's never – he's always covered. I mean, mm-hmm. who can't cover him? I mean, and, and he's got great ability to push, nudge. You know, he's got an incredible instincts. You see, I think we get lost on receivers and evaluation of receivers is we lose sight of balance. Balance mm-hmm. is one of the most important qualities for any defensive back – 
or any wide receiver. You have to be in balance. And if you watch the NBA like you do and I do, you know, great rebounders are always in balance. Well, great rebounders are always able to jump, whether it's off one foot or two feet, and they're able to go high and get the ball. And I think that's why Hopkins is so good. He's got elite balance. I mean elite balance. He's got elite eye-hand coordination, and he's got elite instincts. And he can nudge and push, and he's got the way to create a little bit of separation. And his timing is always so good. So, you know, he'll convert third downs. Will he average 15 yards a catch? No chance. No chance. But he'll he'll move the sticks. Now, how does he fit within the framework of your team? And how does he affect your team? I think those are two issues that only you can find out from talking to people that have coached him. We know he doesn't practice, right? Yeah. That's a concern. You know, not practicing is not an easy thing for coaches to deal with or your offense to get in sync. Before we get to Matt Selman of the Simpsons here, I wanted to ask you about the Raiders and Jimmy Garoppolo, because recently Josh McDaniels was asked about it during the phase two of OTAs about, hey, are you comfortable with Jimmy G with the durability issues and the the metatarsal, the second metatarsal thing? Here's what Josh McDaniels, the Raiders head coach, had to say about Garoppolo and and his uh, level of concern. I have no anxiety. Right. Okay. There you go. You guys might have anxiety. (laughs) I don't have any anxiety. Is there a confidence level then that he'll be there in training camp and ready to go? Yep, I'm not going to put a timeline or a day on anything, but um, like I said, I have no anxiety. Feel pretty good about it. <laughs> Feel pretty good about it. And he has a smile on his face, so you know no anxiety me means, up about this whole, you know? You know what cracks me up about this whole thing, Femi, is what? the Raiders went through this in March. The, everything that's happening today has been orchestrated and planned. We now... T- People in the media are now taking a view of this in June. Mm -hmm. And the view they're taking in June has no idea of what happened in March. And so they're critiquing it today without the understanding of yesterday. It's why history is so important for what we do in life. It's you have to understand what's going on. And and this is what happens in the media. And and as the great Jeff Van Gundy says, you know, you know, rarely right, you know, never always, always uncertain. You know, rarely right, always uncertain. So it, it, to me, it just comes right down to it. It's like we're, we're judging this. And then when you add in the flavor of, no, it says rarely right, never uncertain. I'm sorry. It, it, when you add in the Brady thing out there on the element, all of a sudden there's correlation to this injury mm-hmm. when it has nothing to do with Brady. We want to see Brady come back is what everybody is saying there. But Brady once again says, I'm certain I'm not going to play again. So quit asking. Old <laughs> Tom Brady. We'll see what happens later on this offseason. But Jimmy G, all good to go. We're going to take a quick break. But the showrunner for The Simpsons, Matt Selman, joins us next here on the GM Shuffle. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're going to continue our literature and leadership series here on the GM Shuffle. And this next guest that we have joining us, our third guest with this series this offseason, really, really fun treat for us here on the podcast. He is the executive producer and showrunner for The Simpsons. You might have heard of that show. It's only been around since 1989. It is Matt Selman joining us here on the GM Shuffle podcast. Matt, we appreciate you taking the time, man. How are we doing? It's an honor, guys. You know, I've been listening to Michael Lombardi for a lot of years now, and <laughs> Like I don't, I still watch football and have no clue what's going on, but I love, I love having his voice in my head. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're too kind. You're too kind. I, I love it. I mean, he's a Penn graduate, Femi. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're, we're kindred spirits here, if you will. Uh, and, you know, I love the fact that, you know, I love all writers and to be the showrunner of a show that's lasted so long is somewhat remarkable. Let me ask you, what do you attribute the ability for the show to keep connecting with people as we move through shifts in, in our in our generations? You know, it's I think it just speaks to the, the flexibility and of the, the Springfield Simpson universe that like. People connect, have always connected to those characters, they've always connected to the visual style and as the world evolves or, or devolves or gets crazier, our show is, is there to always hold up the mirror to society. So like, as I always say to people, like if we, people say, how do you think of news stories after 750 episodes? And I'm like, that's the most fun part of the job. And the world is always delivering. And it's interesting you talk about that being the fun part of the job of just observing the world. What's that? collaborative process like for you guys because you guys have a big team i'm sure and 750 episodes obviously highly successful how do you guys kind of go about the creative process is it like you see a headline and say oh like we should do something about that theme with this episode like how do you guys kind of connect what happens in the real world with what goes on in springfield well you know for us it always starts with like character so like how do the characters of our show interact with those real world events but definitely it's it's headlines in the news. It's a TV show we've seen. We've certainly done a lot of Sopranos parodies. Um, a, lot of, a lot of Godfather parodies. Maybe too many Godfather parodies. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, um, maybe, but also maybe it's something that happened at home with one of our kids or one of our parents or one of our you know, friends. It's like, it's, it's, we, our, our job is to be super sponges that absorb everything from every direction and always be carrying a little notepad in our phone and writing down little ideas like from like giant ideas to like, like things like people wanting to change how history classes are being taught to small ideas, small, silly things like those, like, you know, those uh, ads you see on TV on websites all the time of like super jacked old men with this like thing on their stomach that somehow made them into like yeah. the Hulk, but they're like 80 year old Hulks with a magic machine on their stomach. <laughs> like we have to do everything from the biggest to the smallest. 
Yeah, and, and, and you keep track of it. I, I read this book. Uh, it, it impacted my life when I read it. It was called Rewrites by Neil Simon, and he talks about that. struggling to – He talk in the book, he talks about struggling to write a play. And one of the reasons he struggled was because he didn't make the characters interesting enough for the audience to want to see them in Act 3. And I thought to myself, that that's how we should make friends. Are you interesting enough for me to last a lifetime with or be in Act 3? How do you keep giving depth to your characters? Take us through the process of, you know, when you're, when you're in a TV show, you know, I, I heard uh, – the guy from Succession, Jer- I think it's Jeremy Renner, say, you know, in the final scene of Succession, he wanted Jesse to jump Arms, into Jesse the, Arms, the Hudson Arms River. Je- well, he writes it, right? So, but the, the actor right. didn't want, the actor wanted to jump into the bay, but they didn't want him right. to. So he's given feedback to the writer. Who's given you feedback to the character portrayals? Well, our, we really answer to ourselves. Like, I guess I... The crazy thing is, Michael, I've been listening to your podcast for so long. I've really in- incorporated <laughs> so much of your philosophy into my own leadership journey. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's, it's, it's so, it's such a crazy thing, you know? So um, we're, we are sort of like a football team, an old venerable football team. And our owner, if you will, we have two owners who are James L. Brooks, you know, created Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi and Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News. And then Mac Raining is kind of like, you know, the other owner. And so those are the guys that we are writing for when we write the show. And those are the people who we're keeping them in mind. But like, I would say I'm the coach and those guys are the owners, but we definitely answer to them, you know? So I really think about it in terms of being a football franchise and you know, Jim Brooks is the, is the king of like dark, twisted human emotionality. And so when we write the show, we're always thinking for him, is this, I mean, he used a word once with me called, he used the word fucky. Sorry to swear, but (laughs) I've heard Michael swear before when he's angry at, (laughs) angry at Femi. And uh, like, is it like, brutally honest is it painfully emotionally raw but is it also funny and, and, and original without being sentimental so that's like i hope that sort of answers your question that we're like we're always writing towards that we're writing for jim like is he going to connect to the emotionality of the situation well that kind of takes me back to when you first started there because you joined the show back in 1996, 1997. Now in your role as the showrunner, which is essentially the head coach of the football team, how have you grown in your leadership styles there? Like, Because you come in as a writer, kind of just one of the players there, now have evolved into becoming the head coach there of a really successful team at the Simpsons. How has your kind of leadership style evolved over those past few years? Well, I, it's a good question. Like, It's, it's weird because I'm, I'm also kind of like a coach player like, cause I do, I also, you know, Andy Reed doesn't play center, <laughs> but I, maybe he'd be good at it. I don't know. He's, he's a big guy. Um, like, you know, I'm there, I'm involved creatively, but I'm also like the manager and the leader and the, like, hopefully the, <laughs> the like inspiration for the team. And I also have, I have lieutenants. I mean, that's one of the ways it's involved a lot is that I don't try to do it all myself, you know? So I have assist. I have a 
a series of like offensive and defensive coordinators and special teams coordinators, but not not ruling by committee, Mike. And although it is by committee, yeah. it's actually a lot by committee. But <laughs> there's ways that it's similar and ways that it's different to football. But I really trust the people that are under me. Then that's the thing I've really had to to learn to do more. Mm. When I started with limited show running capacity, I kind of did it all myself. I took it all on myself, even though it's still very collaborative throughout. And now I've had to, in order to do more episodes and run more of the show, I've had to delegate more and trust people more and not feel like I need to put my stamp, my personal stamp or my personal aesthetic on every single joke or moment of the show. But at the same time, keep it pointed in the right direction and make it fresh and original and make sure Matt and Jim like it. Well, take us in the room. I've often okay. wondered this when I hear the you word showrunner. Take us into LA. the writing room. Next time you're in L.A., come to the room. <laughs> Hang out with us for a day. I would love that. I, w- I would love that. And and then how do you handle, you know, I've been in draft rooms, which I got to believe is similar to the writing room, where a guy, a, a guy likes a player and you don't like the player, then he gets pissed off because nobody likes his player and he pouts, but he says he's a team player. How, how do you handle – how does your staff handle – their ideas not being taken into? Well, if they've come up in our system, they're, they just know that everything is going to change. So they've come up in our world, in our culture, when we're building culture, right, Mike? So mm-hmm. they've seen other people's scripts get rewritten and they've seen them get better. And they've seen that there's no malice or ego, hopefully no malice or ego or agenda in changing and rewriting, it's just the pressure to keep this show that we all love so good, right? So we don't have a lot of problems with people being super mad or pissed about changing their stuff because they know our culture is that of everyone wants it to be the best. And to, to do that, you have to just change a ton of stuff. And like we, I haven't really seen a lot of fights about that in in my era of, of management coaching just because you know i it it comes back a little bit to that thing that you say about like bill belichick like i'm not i don't consider myself the the bill belichick of show running but like it's it, it's his personality right his management style comes from his unique personality and when other his like when other people that work for him try to go to other teams and try to be Bill Belichick, it doesn't work, right? So when you're when you're yes. a leader, your leadership style is unique to you, and that has to either develop with positively or negatively. And I hope it's developed with me positively. That like people when we're collaborating, they know we. I just want what's best for the show. I I don't really. It's not about my ego. It's not about, are you a good writer or a bad writer? Like it's about, this is this beloved 35 year old institution and we just have to keep it good. We have to keep it fresh and we have to just always be accepting that that's a flexible collaboration style. 
I think that's a really good point. And it kind of, especially with content creation, that's something that you see come up often. Like people do take offense when their ideas get shot down because we're all passionate about this stuff, whether it's you're writing for a show or if you're just in the media doing content or whatever, we've all been in these collaborative meetings before where it's like, Hey, like I have this really cool idea. And it's like, no, that doesn't really work for us there. And I don't know if you're a big basketball fan, but I know something that we've always talked about with Pat Riley and the Miami Heat is that heat culture and trying to fight against the disease of me, which is the, the, the just like hoping that like you don't have like your ego shattered or you get kind of jealous of other people that might be getting praise while you're not getting praise. The constant need of feeling like you're just like you're not having your needs met there. Like, how does that develop for you guys over the time period? Like, do you guys, is that something that was immediately implemented in, or is that just over years and years of, Hey, you either going to fit into this culture or this is not going to be the place for you? Well, that's a good question. You know, there've been, you know, psychological studies about what happens to, to the human brain when they get notes on their creativity and the, 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 the reaction to getting notes on something that you created is like, it's very, it's going to be traumatizing. Yeah. It's, it's like a denial of self. It's a rejection of ego. And so I think it's important in our show's culture to just make people feel that if we're, even if we're changing your ideas, we're not rejecting you. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not denying your ego. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not like, we're not playing into some psychological dynamic where your parents are, are like pushing you away or whatever. I mean, it's not like they're in therapy. It's just like the creative culture has to be like, we know you're great. We know we're on our same page. We're just going to change this. And also you're going to help us change other people's stuff tomorrow. And another guy is going to change another woman's thing tomorrow. And so it, hopefully on our staff, it doesn't feel like this is, you know, a denial of self. I know that sounds a little touch with touchy feely, but you know, creative collaboration is a tricky thing and you want people to feel, this sounds so wimpy. You want people to feel safe. God, that's not, I know that's not very yeah. football, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, no, but it you know, is, it is. You, you, people want to feel like they belong. Mm-hmm. And when you make people feel like they belong, they feel safe and they, they feel they'll say what they want to say. And, you know, when you're doing this for 35 years, I marvel at your competitive stamina because most people would get tired of writing about these characters. Most people would become <laughs> bored talking about the character. You guys just become, you know, invigorated and find ways to do it. I, I, I know this from working with the Daily Coach. Every I see something every single day. When you write every day, you it forces you to look at things in a different way. And that keeps your competitive spirit going. Do you find that to be true? Totally. You just always have to be thinking if it wasn't, if we're not having fun thinking of new ideas, we should be handing off the reins to someone else. Like literally we should, you know, just like, if if it's not fun for me to get excited about new episodes for these characters that are, have not fundamentally changed in 35 years, I've only been there 26 years. So only, (laughs) only two and a half decades, but if that isn't joyful and inspiring to you, when someone pitches you an idea that you haven't heard before, which is this, the craziest challenge that anyone has, right? Like in any in a new show, in a streaming show, people are just like, how can we make an audience connect to these characters 
at all. For us, it's the opposite. It's like, how can we give new life, be constantly giving new life to them for the these characters that they already love? Well, that leads me to my next question, because you talked about how the characters do not fundamentally change. What's behind that decision to keep the characters ageless? Because whether you watched in 1989 or you watched here in 2023, like the characters have not aged and they're kind of living in Springfield land where we all feel like we grow up with them at the same time, even though this has gone over generations that have passed here. I just think it's part of the DNA of the show that they they can't get older. You know, it's to, to have them change and get older. Would is it just a different creative mission statement? And mm-hmm. we, we, we can do fantasy shows when they're older. We can do anything. We can do create. We can tell a story where Bart and Lisa are in an old, old folks home if we wanted. You know, that's not a bad idea, Femi. And uh, <laughs> like we can do anything. We're, it's the most flexible continuity down. in the world. But it always has to come back to character. You know, like in the, I'm sure Michael has not watched that many Simpsons episodes, but like it's not it's it's not that different than the sopranos and i know david chase was took inspiration from the simpsons when he was creating the sopranos that you know it's all about character 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 and and arguably in the sopranos those characters don't hugely change or grow either i mean i don't know michael there's do you no think, question do you think, so do you think tony is a different person that much at the end of the show than he is at the beginning no has he He's no, I, I think right? Tony used the. I think Tony, Tony had. There were two Tonys. T- Tony, that who he was, and then Tony when he went to go see Melfi to get other ideas and curiosity that filtered into what he would wanted to do and use her opinion. And I think she was, she was the instrument of change in the show. I, I think I marvel at that show because if it wasn't for her, I think the show would have been stale. And she allowed the show to redirect. See, I think with The Simpsons, because you've been 35 years in Springfield, you don't have to worry about redirecting. You redirect the characters and you can do what you want. In that show, there needed to be a redirection. And every time Chase wanted that, he just had a meeting and Melfi Melfi gave him that redirection as a writer. I thought that was the brilliance of the show. Mm -hmm. And so, which leads me to my, like, where do you go? You have so many pop, I mean, you have Bill Clinton on an episode. Like, how do you get, where do you go for the pop culture? Like, what are you watching now that you in, would want to integrate into The Simpsons? Well, I'm so, so old now. I just tell the writers, I'll just keep a journal. You know, you just, you watch something, put it in your Simpsons journal, bring it up at work. You know, I really depend on them to bring me things. You know, I'm like a dad and married and running this show. It's a lot of work. Like I kind of depend on the, I depend on the staff, you know, they have to like say, you know, I, I just watched Fargo. Let's do an episode. Like we did a episode that was a two-parter that was based on Fargo and had elements of, you know, streaming prestige dramas. And that was really fun for us. And, you know, the pop adding pop culture is the easiest part of the show in a way it's the, it's finding fresh character dynamics and character conflicts or new ways of looking at character conflicts that's maybe even harder without those feeling repetitive obviously the with your job being what it is as a showrunner you're a writer the the, kind of the elephant in the room is the writer strike that's going on right now the writers guild of america it's been going on since may 2nd i guess can you tell us what's the latest with that and i guess do we have an end in sight here i know a lot of people are concerned about hey like is my favorite show going to be coming back what's going on with there like what's kind of the latest here with the writer strike right now well (laughs) would not describe 
end is being in sight. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a real fundamental shift in how television is being made. And, you know, the, the streamers that have kind of disrupted and disrupted is not, people use the word disruption positively, but I would not myself do that. I think often disruption can kill a healthy host organism like a virus and then just replicate and replicate and leave the healthy organism dead behind it. And it sort of feels like the streaming way of making an unbelievably massive amount of content as cheaply as possible has been and will be destructive for writing as a profession, but also for content creation as something that would be high quality. Like these streamers are just trying to chop away at shows so that they're made by as few writers as possible. And as a student of collaboration and creative team building, that that is terrible for the host organism of excellent television and excellent movies. And like you wouldn't, under the, the ways that the streamers want to make TV now, you would never have a Sopranos. You would never have that, those eight or 10 writers, you know, tearing up ideas together. And even though there's a head writer like David Chase making it his voice, you know, those writers are on the set producing. Those writers are overseeing the show as a team from like nose to tail. And there's like a conscious effort to destroy that way of making TV. And it's, 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 it's financially devastating to like a new generation of writers, maybe not myself, but it's also creatively dev potentially devastating to, to the product itself in that disruption is really killing the host. So that's a very, it's like a metaphorical way of talking about it, but, and I don't have any inside scoop about when it's going to end, but, you know, I just think the protections that the writers myself are, are asking for are just to sustain writing as a viable career, not just, oh, we want more money, but just can this continue to exist as a career and can, in doing so, will shows continue to be good or just is it going to be just endless streams of crappy shows that you don't even really notice as you kind of perceive in the streaming world? It seems counterintuitive, Matt, to me. Like, I would think they would want, like, I'm always searching for shows that pique my interest. And when I see things that aren't, you know, that aren't realistic or the characters like out of whack, I, I just get annoyed. You know, as mm -hmm. much as I hated all the characters in succession in terms of I would never want to hang out with them. I thought they were, you know, entitled and, and self-interested that the show was engaging. Like I would think it would be more about the quality of the work uh, that Netflix and Amazon wants more writers to create more Sopranos, more The Wire. I mean, how mm -hmm. is that? How are we going to entertain if we don't take them in? And also, how are we going to entertain if we're not teaching the new generation? So, you know, you like right. great shows like The Wire and The Sopranos and Succession all have very strong head writers with powerful voices, but they're teaching the new generation how, how to write and produce with their own voice. And then you're going to get the next generation of shows like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul and, and writers will come up working under those showrunners and it's and so you're you're investing in the future of the medium and right now they're just <laughs> uninvesting in kind of a the death of the medium.
it's, it's interesting because I feel like almost like like the inventory is needed, but they just don't want to have to pay to actually get all that inventory made or at least pay the proper rates to get the inventory made. Uh, I just I find it funny, though, because the way you phrased it, that they're chopping down at the organism, because I think a lot of people, if you polled them, they'd say, oh, we're in like the golden age of television. We have all these great shows. But all those great shows are the ones that you've kind of highlighted. That, hey, those are the ones that have the strong writing voices with them. Meanwhile, there's thousands and thousands of these other shows that nobody really pays attention to, but they're sitting there on all of our favorite streaming platforms. And for lack of a better phrase, they're just kind of chopped down versions of what a good show probably should be. Well, it's a little bit like, you know, Reagan in the 80s in the how he outspent the Russians to win the Cold War. It, it, I mean, Netflix is <laughs> is Ronald Reagan just trying to spend so much money that his competitor, their competitors will also spend so much money just to create so many shows that, you know, he'll, he'll spend them out of existence because Netflix stock price is so irrationally high. You know, these companies are, are chasing stock prices, but they're never, they're never going to be Netflix. There's only one Netflix, you know, so Disney, it looks like it is not going to turn itself into a Netflix. And Netflix is kind of, is like the devil who, tricked the other companies into spending themselves to death. But now, now the kind of the bill is coming due, but it shouldn't come at the expense of the writers. Like you, you right. need to just have a, you need to have a, a creative infrastructure or there isn't going to be a future. Yeah. It's like all the accountants got in the room and they're killing creativity. Yeah. You know, it's just like, the, you know, it's just the bottom line has to come in when we all know that the bottom line gets enhanced by creativity. And that's what makes people compelled to want to watch The Wire or The Sopranos when we're on, you know, in COVID and everybody rewatched that thing again and it had a rebirth, you know. And mm -hmm. as you said, you quoted quite a bit. I mean, you know, everybody's goes back. I mean, Femi's a little bit behind, but we'll catch him up. What was your favorite... Progress. Who's your favorite character of The Sopranos, and who would have you liked to have written in The Sopranos? <laughs> oh man, that's it. <laughs> um, that's such a that's a, that's a really hard question, Mike. Uh, I think it, it's, it's almost the same with so people say, "Who's your favorite character in The Simpsons?" I say Homer. I, I think I have to go with Tony. You know, he's the he's the reason you're he's the Homer of that show. I mean. <laughs> he's yeah. the reason you turn in every week. He's the guy, he's the engine that stirs the sauce. That's a great metaphor. The engine mm. that stirs the sauce doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's like the, you know, it's like the Simpsons. There's, it's a, it's a universe of characters and you're happy to get away from Homer and Tony, but you always have to get back to Homer and Tony. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I'm not qualified to answer the question because, like Michael said, I'm still working my way through that. We're on, we're we're late into season four. We should be done with this by the time these damn NBA playoffs get over with. <laughs> we'll be able to finish the episodes. But I'll I'll have an answer for you, Michael, with my favorite character on that one. I, I wanted to ask you though, just about what this writer strikes like, like in the, all the things that are going on with the the money people are trying to kind of chop down the creative folks. Does artificial intelligence, does that kind of play a factor into this? I know chat GPT and, and all these things kind of start to get involved and in like we're sort of learning all this stuff here in 2023. Like how does AI kind of play a factor in the potential for the writing process going forward? Well, I'm no expert in AI. It seems very scary and troubling to me. 
you know, it seems like the last place you would want to save money would be by having a computer analyze everything that came before and spit out a new version of it. Mm -hmm. Like, even if that did create something that kind of resembled television, like why did you want to produce entertainment if it wasn't to partner with creative people? Like, I mean, obviously the answer to that is to make money, but <laughs> you know, it just seems like, well, if you're going to suck all the joy of, of creation out of, you know, television and movies and content, then we're all super fucked. And it's just going to be a joyless computer future where people mindlessly tune into computer simulations of what came before. And look, I can see it happening. We all know any crazy thing can happen, mm -hmm. but it's just a super bummer. And I don't see what, you know, the most expensive version of yeah. paying a writing staff compared to the other costs that these corporations have is so small. And so like, to try to like pinch pennies by like finding a computer that can like regurgitate old plots skillfully or unskillfully is like, what, why? Find yeah. new voices what? that connect to humanity and, and put those out to the world. Don't like, if you want to say, if you want to like save money with the computers, open a tire company. And, <laughs> well, and it's like, like, you know, we, I'm sure you watched the offer. I read the book, leave the gun, take the cannoli. We I had read it all. him yeah, on I'm the I'm pod. A member of the, I'm a member of the Michael right. Lombardi book club, man. Well, uh, thank you. And I appreciate that. And so like, you know, we would not, Mario Puso would not be in our bloodline today if it wasn't for his ability or Coppola's ability to write that screenplay as accurately as they did, or if Warner Brothers would have would have bought it and the accountants wanted to sell it for a million. I mean, at some point there has to be, I think Rick Rubin says this all the time, there has to be a dedication to the craft, to the to the work, not to the audience, because the work drives the audience. I think that's why you've lasted 35 years, your show, 28 years writing it. I mean, it's about the work. That's the hard part. I think where, you know, it's like people want to say, I was on the phone with a college basketball coach this morning. They said, why don't more people do what the Miami Heat do? Because it's hard, because nobody has the patience to do it. Nobody, everybody wants it today. And I think that's what makes your show so good is you're doing it call it old school, call it whatever, is you're, you're kind of sticking to the process and you're still in love with it. I mean, I'm in love with the process. I, I really am. And I, I, it's hard being on strike and not being able to do anything, but whatever, something, something will eventually happen. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, you know, I really, I, I would recommend to like aspiring creative people to read Gridiron Genius. I hate, to, I know it sounds like I'm kissing your butt, Michael, but like I read it and I really, you know, took a lot of, you know, inspiration from it in terms of my own management evolution and coaching prowess or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, even though like a, a TV show, we don't have an, we don't have a, an, an opponent every week that we're, we don't have an opponent every week that we're looking to defeat and find their weakness and, you know, all that our opponent is our, is ourselves mm. and that same and our own <clears throat> complacency, you know, and our, and there's, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in that book to help people in a kind of, even in a, in different well, kinds of I, I capacity. 
I, I appreciate you saying that. I think as I look back on my career, I wish I would have had, I've spent more time in the creative arena uh, than trying to spend as in the strategic arena. You know, the cre- the creative arena, what you do allows you to get to the strategic arena. Uh, they're connected. And when, when you understand that, I think you become a better version of yourself. You know, you think divergently and, and your show has forced to think divergently because you're, you're, you don't have a deadline. You're writing the same year in 35 years, you're in the same place. So you're constantly mm-hmm. thinking of divergent thoughts. And, and I think one of the things we're missing in leadership is, is teaching divergent thought and teaching mm-hmm. coaches leadership. We're so busy in the strategic arena that we lose sight of it. And so when one blackbird flies off the line, they all leave, you know? And so whatever anybody does, it becomes the same. Whereas you're the trendsetter. I mean, and that's the, that palette to paint for you has to be what inspires you to get up every morning. Exactly. And, you know, we're very lucky in that we have this great palette and we have so much creative freedom to do that. I mean, not, not every show has that level of, you know, freedom and an audience connection, you know, built in every morning when we show up at work. This has been really fun. We're up against it a little bit with the time, but I wanted to ask you one fun question before we got out of here, Matt, uh, as Michael alluded to earlier in the interview, uh, he calls me Twitter Femi sometimes. So I'm on Twitter way too much. I oh, no, I want you to be more Twitter uh, yeah. Femi. I want you to, I want you, I, I, I don't want you, you know, Matt, I got to tell you, this man has a bag of excuses that he needs to be Inspector Gadget to go down and get it. He's kidding. He can come we up got, with an excuse for We got the go-go anybody, gadget go arms ahead, over here. <laughs> the question I wanted to ask you, though, because I'm obviously on Twitter, people use all the memes, the Simpsons memes and all that. Do you have a favorite Simpsons meme that people use on social media? Uh, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of old man yells at cloud mm. is holds a soft spot in my heart, but <laughs> everyone loves Ralph Wiggum falling down the hill. It's a good one. You know, uh, I've seen that a lot. Um, you know, I'm trying to, I mean, <laughs> maybe I should stop trying to tell original stories and just be creating memes. Cause that's all <laughs> the world cares about. <laughs> Everyone just will just write memes all day and see which one stick. Yeah, you know we, we live in a meme society now. Uh, Homer backing to the bushes, I think, is probably my favorite one. That's a, I got. Sure. That's, uh, I see that's that a one a lot too. Yeah. Homer going back in there. <laughs> Matt, Matt, uh, what ideas? I know we are up against it, but I want to ask you this question. So you've had more time. You're kind of you're like a coach. You're like Phil Jackson when he was taking time off and he could observe everything. What's the one thing? as this writer strike has forced you away from the, from the room, what's the one thing that you've kind of come in touch with that you didn't think of before? <laughs> one is that I needed a break. <laughs> so that, that's, you know, a, that's a good thing. Wasn't the worst thing just to like, after being, <laughs> being, you know, our, the football, our football season lasts 12 months a year. So <laughs> there's no off season for us. So, just a little bit of a break has been good. And I'm just having fun writing stuff in my Simpsons journal again for when we get going. Just, again, little things, big things, just like TV shows I'm watching, pop cultural stuff, just getting back to like that basic, you know, research of what it, what are the thousands of ideas and jokes and references and cultural moments and character quirks that go into making a show that that is so dense and it'll, well, it just sucks those things up like a sponge. So 
just the idea that I have a time to kind of breathe and just take notes and keep a journal again and not just be thinking, okay, we have five deadlines today. We have six deadlines tomorrow. We have an audio mix tonight. This is airing on Sunday. Like there's a real, it's a lot of work, the show. Show's a labor of love, also a labor of work. <laughs> but like the, the Lombardi nothing, quote. Nothing of, good. Nothing good doesn't have work involved. Like, let's face right. it. I mean, I know everybody wants to lose 50 pounds and take a pill, but like anything that's really good takes work. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, some people say, do you live to work or work to live? If you're lucky to have a job that you love and not a lot, not most people don't have that, which is too bad. But if you're lucky to have a job that you love work and creative collaboration is the most stimulating thing in in the world and you just feel so lucky to have that and to have created a body of work that you can look at yourself and feel like b plus level proud about <laughs> is fantastic i mean the, the michael lombardi quote of another quote that i quote the most of course is the key to victory lies in the management of the non-obvious and i, I mean i say that all the time around the office that you know what how can we, you know, anticipate the tiniest, smallest thing that we might need in the future to create a little bit of bonus excellence, you know? And I, I hope I've instilled that in the staff as well, because that it's a really, it's a, a, it's a, it's a wonderfully nerdy way of saying just obsess about it all and never, never, <laughs> never relent. Yeah, it's the, the great yeah. Marcus Aurelius. It, I, th I think what it does is it, it fuels your competitive s stamina, right? You know, if, if you ran into, I read this the other day, if you run into Danny Meyer, the restauranteer who owns Shake Shack and the Gramercy Tavern and all that, you know, he's never cooked in his life. He's never, you know, he's never really been in a kitchen, but his restaurants are incredible. If you complain to him about something in the restaurant, he doesn't apologize. He asks you specifically what went wrong. Right. If you give him praise for something that happened in his restaurant, he doesn't say thank you. He asks you, what could he do better? That mm -hmm. mindset mm -hmm. is what devotes competitive stamina. He, Danny Meyer is great. That's another Michael Lombardi book club book, his, uh, his uh, autobiography. Yeah. Although I do think the Shake Shack uh, fried mushroom cheese veggie burger is almost inedible and disgusting. <laughs> And I would like, I can't, I, I don't, don't think I do that. it either. I mean, I know you're not a, probably not a big fried mushroom guy. And I think the burgers are good, but I, I tried love fried mushrooms, but I, no. I want it on a, on a piece of red meat, <laughs> not on a piece of tofu. It's like, it's so congealed and gross and oily and uh, Danny Meyer. That's what, that's what you need to do better. A better <laughs> veggie burger. There you go. I, I, I love the hamburgers and the cheeseburgers <laughs> that it's a dis it's disgusting. It's inedible. Yeah, keep the fungus away from my meat. Nah, we don't we don't want that here on the GM Shovel Podcast. This was a lot of fun, and I think I speak for all of us, Matt, when we say that we hope the journal can come to life soon. I know you guys are with the writer strike, and I'm sure you're taking yeah. some much needed I time off, but we want to see it come to life. Well, I, I think too. I'm going to start sending you ideas now that I know there's a journal. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, should, I mean, all writers, everyone should just keep. Everyone has a. Everyone has your phone on them all the time. It's, you don't need a little yeah. book, you know, yeah. that's what Larry David does. I and mean, yeah. that's why curb your enthusiasm is great. He's never not writing things down. No, he told me I had, I had dinner with him one time with a bunch of people and he came into the room and he, and he, and, and they introduced me as the football guy and he, and he's a jet fan. And he said, you know, I could call plays. I could call plays. And I've said, <laughs> well, I, I could write jokes. 
I could write jokes. And he said, yeah, you could. All I need is an idea. Tell me an idea and I'll write the joke. And I think that is real. That was a great learning experience for me. I agree with you. Like now, you know what I do now when I'm walking and I'm listening to podcasts, I do voice memos. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good way to do it. And I think this has been a really fun interview. I wish it could have gone longer, but we're up against Thanks, it. Matt. And I don't want our producer, Elliot, to get off my ass. I, 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 I got yeah, to do the next show. So, Matt, I loved it. This I'll is be a in lot touch. of fun. Thank you, Matt. This All right, guys, come, come to L.A. Hang out for a day in the writer's room. We'll do a little master oh, class for you. And then we'll watch oh, a football I'm coming. Game. Yeah, I, I, there we go. I got to do that. I love it. We'll, Thank you, Matt. We'll come up with a All script right, for the NFL guys. season. That is true. Matt Selman, executive producer and showrunner for The Simpsons, six-time primetime Emmy Award winner. And it's just an all-around great guy joining us here on the GM Shuffle podcast. That does it for this edition of the GM Shuffle. We'll talk to you guys coming up on Thursday, which will be a more evergreen podcast. That'll be the best and the worst offseason so far in the NFL. But we will see you guys on Thursday. Thank you to our producer, Elliot Bowman, with us on the ones and twos. Thank you to you, Michael. Thank you to Matt Selman as well. And we will talk to you guys on Thursday.